Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. So now as we come to the pages of Scripture, as we come to these words of Jesus, would you, would you speak to us today? Would you move in our hearts and move in our hands and in our feet? Teach us to love better. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, once again, thanks to some of our uh, students for uh, being a part of our worship team today and leading us. Uh, some great things are beginning to happen in our faith student ministry, our faith kids ministry. Our faith kids had a great event last night with a ton of kids here. And uh, so uh, if you've got a kid in the elementary age, you want to be sure you get them plugged into the faith kids stuff. And if you've got a middle school or high school student in your life, our faith student ministry is doing some wonderful things too, including, finally, our Sunday night youth group begins again tonight. We've had to put this off and put this off because of weather the last couple of weeks, but we are back in it uh, tonight. So if you've got a middle school or high school kid in your life, be sure they're here tonight at 6 o'clock for our time of youth group. Well, we're moving on today in our series of sermons we're calling Questioning Jesus. I appreciate Brian stepping in and kind of pinch hitting for me last week as we dealt with the plague at our house, uh, but thanks for Brian for preaching my sermon. I understand he did a pretty good job with my words last week, right? Yeah, so I appreciate Brian stepping in. He always does a remarkable job. Well, in this series, what we're doing is this Questioning Jesus series, is we're, we're realizing that all of us at one time or the other, all of us question God, maybe more than we want to admit, certainly more than we would admit on a Sunday morning at church, right? But we all question God. And it might not be so much a question of, is God real, as it is a question of, is God right? And what we're doing in this series is we're walking through the first kind of first half of the gospel of Mark in our New Testaments. And we're looking at this moment, uh, these moments when people question whether or not Jesus was right. So to set this up today, I need to tell you a story. Uh, this event happened just about a year ago in a, a town called Beaverton, Oregon. You may have seen this on the news. A man stole a car, which is not why this story made the news. The car that the man stole had a four-year-old child strapped into the back seat of the car when the car was stolen. Also, not why the story made the news. You ready? Here's what happened. A young mother with her four-year-old son, or ch child, strapped in the back seat, pulls into the parking lot of a grocery store. It's right in the height of COVID, mask, all the work. She thinks, it will be easier for me to just run in, get what I need, one thing at the grocery store, and just than it is to get my child out. So she does. She, she runs to the store, leaving her child in the car, runs into the store real quickly to get the one thing, leaves the child in the car, leaves the keys in the car with the car running with the child in the car. She goes into the store. A man walks along, sees a car running out in front of the store. He gets in the car and steals the car. Now, it's not too, he doesn't go too far before he realizes there is a child, a small child, strapped into the back seat of the car. So this car thief does the right thing. He turns the car around and drives it right back to where he found it, proceeds to get out of the car, get the child out of the car, goes into the store, finds the mother, and are you ready for this? Begins to lecture the mother on what a bad mom she is for leaving her child in the car unattended. 
He even, get this, he even threatens to call the police. Hands the woman her child, goes back, gets back in the car, and drives off. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Have you ever had someone give you a lecture about something, and the whole time you're thinking, you got no room to talk, Jack. You, you've been there before. Somebody's giving you a lecture or something, and you know <laughs> you are not very qualified to talk about this subject. Well, that is exactly what's going to happen here. When we see some people, if you can imagine this, some people are going to, in Mark chapter 2, they're going to question Jesus about religion. <laughs> can you imagine? That's what we're going to explore today. You need to know, before we get to our text, you need to know <clears throat> Jesus, when he was here on earth, when he was walking around, Jesus was a very religious person. Now that's important because you're going to hear a lot of people say it, it, today in our time, and you may have even thought this or said this yourself, this phrase, I'm spiritual, I'm just not very religious. Now, when people use that phrase today, um, I, I kind of get it. A lot of time, uh, they, are, they are defining religion as a pointless, lifeless, useless ritual. And if that's your definition of religion, if that's what you've experienced, I, I, I get it. Maybe there are people, and there's a lot of people, maybe there are people who have been wounded by religion or by religious people. And if that's why they want to do away with religion, I, I get that too. Maybe there are people who have been burnt by or turned off by hypocritical religion. By the way, Jesus was too. But Jesus didn't abandon religion, and, and neither should you. Here's the problem. When we, when we say something like, well, well, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious, here, here's what that means. It means that you have, you have created for yourself a designer faith that is kind of molded in your image instead of the image of the one you worship. It's, it, it's a designer faith that can't be scrutinized because it's all within you. It, it's, it's a faith that doesn't have to be fully integrated into all the parts and areas and arenas of my life. It's a faith that doesn't have to submit to any moral truth outside of myself. And maybe more importantly, it's a faith that doesn't have to be accountable. It doesn't have to be accountable to text. It doesn't have to be accountable to tradition. It doesn't have to be accountable to other people. But for millennia, for thousands of years, the way that people have encountered God is through the proper practice of religion, through Submission to sacred scriptures through um, the observance of sacraments like communion that we'll participate in in just a little while, through meeting together and being accountable to it to a broader, a bigger community of faith, bigger than just me. These are how, for thousands of years, this is how people have encountered the presence of God. And you need to know this this is how Jesus lived. This is how he did life. He submitted himself to sacred scripture. He regularly practiced the observances and rituals of his faith, and he met regularly, meeting even weekly in the synagogue, practicing faith in a community of faith. Jesus was a deeply religious man. And Jesus was very, very quick to confront those who wanted to use a good thing in a bad way. 
And that's what we're going to see in our text today. This is Mark chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 23. You'll be on the screen behind me. If you've got a Bible, you want to follow along while I read it out loud, um, we'll invite you to pull your Bible out and do that. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Now let me show you what's kind of happening here so we kind of all know what's going on. It was not unlawful that they were picking some heads of grain as they walked through the, the, this field. You can go back to the Old Testament, all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, and the, 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 the Old Testament law, the, the Hebrew law says, if you're walking through a vineyard and you're hungry, you can take some of the grapes off the vine and eat them. That's, that's okay. If you're walking through a grain field and you're hungry, you can take some of the heads of grain off the stalks and you can, you can eat those. You just couldn't use a tool. You couldn't take a bucket and a shovel and dig a bunch of stuff up and, t- and, and harvest a bunch of stuff and take it home. You couldn't do that. But you could walk along and just grab a handful of stuff for your own use and need at the time. The problem here that these Pharisees are getting all upset with the, with, with the disciples about, the problem is not in the taking of the grain. The problem is, uh, is in the time. It's in the timing. They did it on the Sabbath. Now notice, the disciples here, they're not trying to be confrontive. They're not trying to stir the pot, you know, get Jesus all riled up with the, with the religious leaders. That's not what's going on here. They are simply trying to meet a legitimate need. They are poor men. They walk a lot, and they're hungry, and so they're eating. But by doing so, what they've done is they have violated some of the oral interpretation of the rabbis about what the word work means. The Sabbath command that, they're, that, that, that the rabbis are getting all in a, in a fit about here, the Sabbath command simply said, do not work on the Sabbath. Well, what is work? Well, the rabbis, through, through generations at this point, have come up with pages upon pages of interpretations of what that means, what this, this idea of working on the Sabbath means. Here's what they decided. I don't have time to go on them. But for instance... You could take, on the Sabbath day, you could take so many steps. But if you took one more, you've worked. You could go to the kitchen. You could fix so much stuff in the kitchen, but if you did one thing more, you've worked. You could, you could help take a six, only, but only so much. If you did one thing more, you've worked, and you've broken the law. What they did, they called this, the, these, these interpretations around the law, they called these things the kumra. And what the kumara, the, the word kumara means is fence. So get, get, it's, a, it's a great picture. What they've done is they've taken the law, here's the law that, that God's given them, and they have built a fence around the law in order to keep God's people from breaking the law. They say, if you stay on that side of the fence, you're not even going to get close to breaking the law. This is how we're going to do a religion. So stay on the outside of the fence, not on the inside of the fence. What's happened in this moment in Mark chapter 2 is, the disciples, when they pick these heads of grain on the Sabbath, the disciples have climbed over the fence. They're now on the wrong side of the fence. And so in the, in the Pharisees' mind, the question that they're really asking Jesus here in Mark 2 is, if you love God, then why don't you love his law? Why don't you follow the rules? 
if you love God, why don't you love his law? Why don't you stay on the outside of the fence that we created to protect the law? But they weren't just trying to protect the law. They were trying to protect themselves from offending an autocratic and easily angered judge. Because that's how they viewed God. So when Jesus responds to the people who are questioning here in Mark 2, he doesn't just challenge their interpretation of the law. Jesus is going to challenge the way that they view God. And what Jesus does is absolutely brilliant. He goes back to the very book that they've been reading, and he asks them to reconsider. Look what happens next, verse 25. Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures? By the way, can you imagine the tension in this room? Jesus asked a bunch of religious scholars, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures? That's just like a slap in the face. That's, that's, that's ice, ice cold. Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. Now, Jesus is, is asking this question to guys who have read this story a hundred times. Maybe you haven't. So let me just tell you the story real quickly. What's going on in the story that Jesus is referencing here is David, when he was a young man, has been anointed by the prophet Samuel to become the next king of Israel. The problem was there was already still a king of Israel. His name was Saul. And so when Saul finds out that the next king has always already been anointed, Saul perceives David to be a threat. I get that. And so what Saul decides he's going to do, I can't have this threat, I'm going to have David killed. And so when we pick up the story here, what's going on is Saul's men, his armies, are chasing David and his men, trying to kill David so that he's no longer a threat to the throne. And David and his companions are on the run. They're being chased and chased and chased, and they finally come to a point where they are exhausted, and they have completely run out of supplies, and his men are hungry. And so they come to the tabernacle, which was the, the precursor to the temple, where you met God. They come to the tabernacle, and David goes to the tabernacle, goes to the priest. He says, listen, my men are hungry. I'm hungry. We're running for our lives. Give us some food. And the priest says, uh, David, we don't have a kitchen in the tabernacle. There's no drive-up window in the tabernacle. We don't have any food. The only food we have in the tabernacle is the consecrated bread. You ask, what's that? My answer is, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. Here's what, I, here's what I figured out. In Leviticus 24, it says that every week on the Sabbath, they were to bake brand new bread, put it on an altar as an offering to the Lord, as a food offering to the Lord, and that the only people who could eat that bread were the priest in, in the tabernacle. That's all I could figure out. But the law is very clear about it. The only people who could eat it were the priest. So the priest says, David, there's no food in the house. Well, we got that consecrated bread on the altar. David says, that's great. I'll take it. And he did. And he ate it, and he gave it to his men, and they ate it. There is no way to read this story, no way to hear the story, without concluding that technically David broke the law. But it's interesting. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God ever reprimand David for breaking the law about the bread. And listen, God was really quick to reprimand David when he broke the law, because he did a bunch of times, and he screwed up a bunch of other things. God was very quick to reprimand. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God reprimand David about this bread incident. So what's Jesus' point here in Mark 2? That it's not a big deal to not obey the law? No, no, no. 
Jesus' point is not that obeying the law was no big deal. His point is, to properly obey the law, we have to discern what the big deal is. Look what he says next. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Jesus is saying what we're arguing about here, about what the big deal is. And you, he's saying to the Pharisees, you thought that the big deal was the Sabbath, was the rule. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The big deal is not the rule. The big deal is the people. Jesus isn't claiming the right to break the law. Jesus is claiming the right to properly interpret God's law. That God's law exists for people's benefit. It's for them. For example, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24 says, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God. Why? So that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And this is a, a huge paradigm shift for these religious leaders. It might be a huge paradigm shift for you as well. Maybe some of you have bought into the narrative that God gave you a bunch of laws, a bunch of rules to restrict your life, to be, to be a burden on you. But, but you have to keep them. You've got to keep on the straight and narrow if you want to go to heaven, if you want to keep God happy. Listen to me. Everything that God has ever asked of you and me, everything that God ever commanded us to do was for us, for the best possible life. The law's purpose was to bless people, not stress people. And I think this is especially true with regard to the, the original intent of the Sabbath, this law that was all a big mess here in Mark chapter 2. If you go back to the very, very first chapter of the Bible, in the creation story, on the sixth day of creation, God creates people. It's his most prized possession. It's his masterwork, his work of art. The thing he's the most proud of of all the creation is humans. And on the sixth day, on the seventh day, he rested. He institutes a Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was made for the people, not people for the Sabbath. That's Jesus' point here. God made people. He said, I am so thrilled with this part of my creation that I'm going to institute a Sabbath to bless them. And that's exactly what the Sabbath was designed to do, to bless people. In that time, this ancient culture, everybody worked that were desperately everybody was desperately poor and they worked day to day hand to mouth hoping to survive from one day to the next they worked hard and the fourth commandment go back to the ten commandments but the fourth commandment said that on the seventh day you rest you rest everybody rest the man the woman the kids your employees your servants even foreigners even your animals rested on the seventh day. Everybody rest. You refresh. You protect the physical and mental health of working people. And you create some space 
in your life to refocus on God. That's the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was introduced, instituted, to meet the needs of people. So Jesus says here in Mark 2, my disciples are not disrespecting the law. My disciples are actually reflecting the true purpose of the law. Later on in Jesus' life, a lawyer will come to Jesus and it will ask him, all right, Jesus, if you're going to sum up the law, if you're going to sum up the whole law, what's the most important of the law? Of all the laws, which one's most important? And Jesus says, I'll give you one sentence for an answer, but the sentence has two parts. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, this is what the law is trying to teach us to do. So back in Mark 2, what Jesus did then is question his questioners. They said, hey, if you love God, why don't you love his law? And Jesus turns it right back on them and says, if you love God's law, why don't you love your neighbor? See, the point here is not that Jesus is against religion. Jesus is against religion that misses the point. So back to that conversation Jesus had with the lawyer. The lawyer asked the question. Jesus answered, you've got to love God and love your neighbor. That's, that's the answer to the question. That's the answer to the most important law. Love God, love your neighbor. So the lawyer, because he's a good lawyer, he asked the follow-up question. But who's my neighbor? I think you know how this story goes. That's when Jesus tells maybe the most famous story in all of literature. He tells a story about a, a man walking down a road and he gets mugged, robbed, beaten up, left for dead in a ditch by the side of the road. The first two people that walk by him and see his body laying near death in the ditch, the first two people were a priest and a Levite, two very, very religious men. But in the story, they passed by on the other side of the road. They saw a man in real need, with real-time needs. It wasn't even a Sabbath. It wasn't even the Sabbath. But they didn't help him. Why? Why didn't they help him? Probably. They probably didn't help him because they were very religious men. Probably because they thought, that guy's dead. That guy's dead. He's at least really, really in bad shape. If I go over and if I touch him and he's dead, then I have defiled myself and then I cannot perform my religious duties. Therefore, and they're thinking, therefore, in order to honor God, I can't go over and see if I can help that man. And Jesus says, I'm paraphrasing, Jesus says, that's messed up. That's really messed up. When you start believing that the way to honor God is to dishonor people. I need to say that again. This might be the most important thing I say on this platform all year long. Pay attention. It's really messed up when you start believing that the way to honor God is to dishonor people. 
even people that don't look like you, or vote like you, or think like you, or work like you. It's really messed up when you start believing that the way to honor God is to dishonor people. Listen to me. I recognize that bad religion exists. And I know it's turned a lot of people off. A lot of people that I love. It's turned them off. But the answer is not to avoid religion. The answer is to do religion like Jesus did. So let me ask you two questions that I hope will help you with your own religion. Here's the first question. Does your religion stress you? Does your religion stress you? Because religion is not supposed to be a grind. It's supposed to be a grace. It's, it's supposed to bless you, not stress you. And I suspect that, that whichever it does, whether it blesses you or stresses you, I suspect that whichever it does depends on how you think of God, how you view God. If your primary view of God, if you, when you think about God, if you see a God that is a, a judge that has his finger wagging at you, just waiting for you to screw up, waiting to zap you because you messed up, if that's your picture of God, a God that's waiting to punish you, then I guarantee your religion will always stress you. I know a lot of people like that. And when I asked him, so, so just imagine for a minute that, that God is looking at you, and when God's looking at you, what do you see on God's face? And almost always the answer is something like, oh, he's, God's so disappointed with me. I mean, I, mean, I can just, just never do enough. I, I, I can just never seem to get it right. God is just so disappointed in me. And their religion brings them such exhaustion. Listen, that's not my view of God. My view of God is not of an angry judge ready to punish. My view of God is of a loving father ready to bless his kids. You parents remember back when kids were little and they'd be asleep and finally a moment's peace, right? And you go and you look at them laying there in the bed, laying there in the crib, and they're sound asleep. And they're so peaceful, so still, so quiet. And you stare at them. You know, I'm going to use this word. You would just delight in them. When I wake up in the morning, I, I think that's how God looks at me. That he delights in me. And if your religion is, well, I gotta do this, and I gotta do this, and I gotta do this, and I gotta do this in order to hopefully keep God happy, your religion will be toxic to your life and to your soul. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world? Look at all the world's religions. Christianity is the only religion in the world that doesn't start with Here's what you have to do in order to keep God happy. Every other religion in the world starts with, you have to do this to keep God happy. Christianity starts with, instead, Christianity starts with, here's what God has done to show you he loves you. That's what Christianity starts. That's what we do each week when we celebrate communion. That's one of the reasons why we celebrate communion every week. We take this sacrament of communion together. We refocus and we remember that God delights in me in us. If your religion is wearing you out, if your religion is making you anxious, if your religion is making you exhausted, may I be gentle but firm? You need to put Jesus back in the center of your religion. I promise you, it will not make your life harder. It will make your life better. 
and you will never question doing life with Jesus. Does your religion, religion stress you? It shouldn't. One more question. Does your religion bless others? Later on in the New Testament, Jesus' little brother, a guy by the name of James, writes this little letter, and he says this about religion, James chapter 1. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Pay attention here to what James says. Here's what pure religion looks like. It starts with me saying nice things to people, not ugly things. He says, if your words hurt people, if your words hurt people, your religion's worthless. He says it means to be unspotted by the world. Listen, your, in other words, your neighbor, your coworker, your friend is blessed when you show and when you model an ethic and a morality that's different than the rest of the world. And it says it means helping widows and orphans. In other words, it means that your religion leads you to bless people who will never be able to pay you back. I heard of a man angry at God, just angry at God because of all the suffering, all the ugliness, all the mess of the world. So he cries out to God in his frustration, God, why is there so much suffering in this world? And God responds, I was about to ask you the same question. But the man says, God, God, even I can make a world better than this. And God says, that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Make the world better than this. Our religion should make our speech kinder. And I would add to that what our post on Facebook. Our religion should make our compassion greater. Our religion, you're not going to Our religion should make our wallets lighter and our bank accounts smaller. Our religion should definitely make our response quicker when we see a chance to meet a real need. Because good religion does a lot of good. Let me finish with this story real quickly. Dan Curtis is an author. He's a Christ follower. He grew up in a time that not too many of us remember called the Great Depression, which meant his family, like most families, had very, very little. So he was thrilled when he was a young boy when his dad came home and announced that he had saved and saved and saved enough that he was going to take the family to the circus. And so they go to the circus, this family, Dan's family, his mom and dad, his brothers and sisters, they get in line behind a huge family, a family of 10. There's a mom and dad and eight little kids all under the age of 12 right in front of them in line for the tickets to the circus. Dan says, I could tell by their clothes that they were of even more meager means than we were. The children, all eight of them, were so excited to get to go to the circus. The wife is standing there just beaming, looking at her husband like he is the knight in shining armor. The man goes to the ticket counter and he asks for 10 tickets. He drops his wife's hand and his jaw falls. He says, how much? It was obvious he didn't have enough money to take his family to the circus. That's when Dan Curtis remembers his father reaching into his pocket and pulling out a $20 bill. All the money he had, the money he was going to use to take his family to the circus. And Dan Curtis's father just dropped that $20 bill on the ground right by the man in front of his foot. Tapped him on the shoulder. Excuse me, excuse me sir, I 
think you got that? Well, the man knew immediately what Dan's father had done, and he grabbed his hand and shook it, thanked him. He said, you have no idea how much this means to my family. And that family, the family of Tim, they got to go in and see the circus that day. Dan's family knew how to do it. Dan Curtis would tell you he didn't know about it. He would tell you that as long as he lived in his house, as long as he lived under his father's roof, he saw a dad reading his Bible every day. He saw a dad who would lead the family in a prayer before every meal around the table. He saw a dad get in the car every Sunday morning to get the entire family to church every week without fail. And Dan says, we never had any issues. Because it's hard to question a religion that would produce a man like would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask those of you who are serving our emblems of communion this morning, go ahead and take your places, prepare to serve. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how Jesus taught us, how he taught what, what it is that you really want from us. We thank you for how he modeled for us. We thank you that you have been so, so patient with us as we try to learn, as we try to get this thing right. Forgive us when we fall short. Help us to be more like Jesus. Not, not just to honor him, but to bless our neighbor. Teach us to love better. And God, now as we come to our time of communion, remind us in this moment Remind us in this bread and in this cup that you delight in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray.